Hello and welcome to Harness Your Hopes. In this series, six West of Ireland writers have written a new short story on the theme of harnessing hope. They're going to read it and then I'll have a chat with them about their craft and how the theme inspired them. Jerry Boland Thirst A man walked into a pub. The pub was on the outskirts of a suburb he didn't know. He had been walking since early morning, and he had a shocking thirst on him. The contrasting darkness of the pub's interior forced him to stand a moment inside the door, waiting for his eyes to accustom themselves to the gloom. Elvis was singing somewhere in another part of the pub, or maybe out the back. The song was one he hadn't heard for over twenty years. It was not one you heard any more on the radio. Old Shep. Sentimental rubbish, but a tearjerker all the same. He stood listening, remembering. The old house he had grown up in. His father, a tear running down each cheek as the song moved to its sad climax. His mother, in the corner, on her armchair, trying not to laugh. Hello? He called out to the empty space. Is anyone home? The song came to an end, and another Elvis song began. He walked across the wooden floor and stopped at the counter. A large hound was fast asleep on the floor behind it, a collapsed heap of an old dog who had only two interests in life, and he was acting out one of them now. The man didn't know what that would feel like, doing absolutely nothing, just eating and sleeping and watching the world come and go during the brief periods of wakefulness. Yet he liked the idea of it, though he knew as he thought it that it would always remain a thought. Rest had never been part of his makeup. There was a small lamp with a faded yellow shade on the shelf behind the counter. This was the only light in the pub. He looked up and down the long counter. Beer mats, bar stools, booze and plenty of it on the shelves. Yet no one to serve him. He toyed with the idea of going behind the counter and pouring his own pint. It would be easily done, except for the dog, who just might wake up, who just might prove that there was life in him still. Though looking down at the big useless lump of a thing, he doubted it. He'd worked in pubs all over the world. It was, in the main, what he did. He'd even worked in a pub not unlike this one, though about as far away from here as you could get. It was in a remote region of southern Australia, on a route from one big town to another. The middle of nowhere, and yet there were customers dropping in and out all day long, almost all of them men. The odd woman, though never a woman on her own, except once. He had been behind the counter, pulling himself a pint. He was out in the yard earlier, sorting and stacking the empty barrels. It was hot and dry, and a familiar thirst came over him. He was on his own till eleven. It was still early, and he hadn't opened up yet. All the doors were wedged open to air the place. A light breeze passed through the pub's interior, entering as a warm current, exiting a little cooler. He came in the back and went behind the counter and began to pour himself a cold lager. 
a shadow darkened the front doorway. Without looking up, he called out, We're not open yet. Come back in half an hour. The shadow moved, but not away. He heard the sound of her heels and looked up. Can I help you? A girl, half his age, stood behind the counter. He hadn't heard her come in from wherever she had been. While she was waiting for his order, she bent down and caressed the back of the hound's head and neck. What's the dog's name? he asked. Mutt, she said. I was going to pour myself a pint, but I wasn't sure how Mutt would react. She gave him a different look now, more cautious, examining rather than inquisitive. It wasn't normal that a stranger would even think about pouring his own pint. She knew her father wouldn't like it. I wouldn't have gone in behind the counter. I know better than that. I only said it because I've worked in pubs all my life and Pouring pints is the most natural thing in the world for me. I've been standing here for a while, fine-tuning my thirst. I called out a few times, but no one came. He saw her face relax. She stepped outside the hard exterior she had shown him. What can I get you? A pint of Smithicks. Elvis continued to provide the background music as the ale filled the pint glass. Mutt snorted once was silent again. He looked at the girl. She was pretty in a peculiar sort of way. Not everyone would see it, but he did. He guessed she had no idea how striking she was, so unconventional was her face, her expression, her mouth, her eyes. He reckoned she was nineteen or twenty. She could have been his daughter, except he already had one, and this wasn't her, though it was also true that he didn't know what his daughter looked like. What's your name, then? Emily. I'm guessing this is a family concern and you're the daughter, am I right? You're not wrong. Is this your full-time job? You ask a lot of questions. Oh, I'll stop. I know what it's like with the clientele firing stupid questions at you all day long. It's not the questions that get to me, she said. It's the long-winded, pointless stories that do my head in. Tell me about it. She placed a beer mat on the counter in front of him and laid the cold pint glass on it. That'll be four-twenty, please. He rummaged in his pocket and produced a wad of notes and pulled a five and handed it over. Don't bother with the change. He was old enough to be her father, which was fine because she had no interest in boys her own age. She'd dated a few and they had all come up short. Once only had she dated a man much older than her, as old, in fact, as this man. And although it hadn't worked out, at least she felt as if she was with an adult. The man on the far side of the counter had an interesting face. Lived in, that would be the phrase. He could do with a bit of cleaning up and would benefit from a shave, but other than that he seemed all right. Easy in his own company. If he was a bit pushy, she understood that maybe in the world in which he existed he had to be. If Dad was here now, he'd say you have the look of a survivor, she said. From someone else, the remark would have been clumsy, if not plain rude. But he thought nothing of it. I guess you could call me a survivor. I'm still above ground in any case. I'm doing social studies in college, she said. I'm interested in the lives that people lead. People who can't settle have always intrigued me. Ah, you're a reader of people, Emily. That's a good skill for a bar owner. You'd be amazed how many I've met who always miss the really bad troublemakers. 
Is the fact that I've never settled that obvious? Sorry, it's none of my business. Dad keeps telling me to leave my studies in the house when I'm working. I take no offence. I like it when someone says what's on their mind. Anyway, I may well be a wanderer, but there's nothing especially intriguing about me. Everyone's intriguing, she said, before picking up a damp cloth and emerging from behind the counter to wipe down the tables in the lounge. He didn't agree that everyone was intriguing. He'd met too many over the course of his rambling, random life who were just downright boring and banal. He'd also met the opposite. If he closed his eyes, which he did now, he could see her clearly, that first sighting, as she crossed the floor towards the counter in that straw-coloured sleeveless dress and her heels. She was like a vision on that sweltering outback morning. I'm not looking for a drink, she said. I'm looking for directions. Except a month later, she was still there, working the tables, serving behind the counter, cooking meals for the three of them, himself, herself, and Mac, the pub's owner. Mac's wife had died the year before, and he seemed pleased to have a woman around the house again. She never said where she had come from, and she never said where she was heading, and there was something about her that stopped him from asking. He had asked once at the very beginning, when he'd stood behind the counter looking at her, unable to stop looking at her, until he'd caught himself and looked down at his feet, just so he wouldn't gape at her any longer and make a fool of himself. It was that gesture of retreat, of submission, that must have appealed to her, for she sat herself down on the bar stool in front of him and said, What the hell? I'm not in a hurry to get to that dump anyway. I'll sit here in the shade for half an hour, and after that you can serve me a beer. Would that be all right if I just sit here and rest my bones and cool off and don't get in your way? He was staring at her again, but now he had a question to answer, which he did, and that was when he'd asked her where she was headed. She looked off to her left, her gaze fixed on some point in the semi-darkness of the pub. You know, I think I won't go there at all. I think I'll just head on back the way I came. By eleven she had met Mac, who took to her at once, and by lunch she was already settled. He never once had the impression she was a loose woman. In fact, if he formed any view at all, it was that she was a woman of class, the sort he would never meet in normal circumstances. Only when she was gone did he realise how much he loved her. But by then it was too late to do anything about it. You were thirsty! The girl was back from cleaning the tables. His glass was empty. Do you want another? I do, but it's much too early to be drinking a pair of pints. God knows how the day might end up. You're not an alcoholic, then? He stared at her, then he laughed. You shouldn't ask a customer that. You never crossed that line. Did your father not teach you that? Actually, I only work here when there's an emergency. Dad's brother had a stroke in the middle of the night. He's in intensive care. I'm sorry to hear that. Is that why you're holding the fort? Your folks are in the hospital. Dad is. Mum died a year ago next month. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that, Amelie. I really am. He slid off his bar stool. He was tired and he needed to move on out of here. It was just too cosy, and if he stayed any longer, he'd only be sad later. I should make tracks. I hope your uncle pulls through. Where are you headed? Good question. 
I thought I knew before I came in here, but right now I'm not too sure. I might go back the way I came. Which is where? You ask a lot of questions, Emily. She laughed. It made him feel better about himself, about Emily's uncle, about Emily herself. He didn't know why he would feel like that, didn't understand how her laughing just there, like that, would make him feel that way. I'm grateful for the conversation, Emily. It's put me in a better mood than I was when I came in. He turned his back and walked towards the door. Don't forget to come back, she called after him. When you've gone where you have to go. When Lorelei, he'd never really believed that was her real name, decided it was time to go, he'd called out those exact words to her as she drove away. He didn't believe she would come back. As he watched her car disappear over the horizon, he realised he knew next to nothing about her. Other than that, he had never shared a bed with a woman like her. She could sew, she could sing sweetly, she could pull pints and banter with a lonely clientele, she could love a man until he was worn out. Don't forget to come back, he'd call to the receding car. I'll be here waiting. She could have come back. There was always that remote possibility that had crossed his mind from time to time. But if she had, she would have found the place much changed. A few months after she left, Max sold out to a consortium and the place was converted into a franchise motel. While he'd been in the pub, a change had come over the day. The dense mass of grey cloud that had crushed the morning was moving slowly out to the west and blue sky was taking its place. The sun was shining where he stood on the pavement and it felt warm on his back. He looked to his left, then to his right. He had no place that he wanted to go. Back the way he'd come wasn't an option. He'd outstayed his welcome there. Where he was headed held little promise. The last time he'd been, the sister-in-law made it plain that he wasn't welcome. You're a bad influence on Ben, she'd said when all the time he'd thought it was the other way around. Because growing up, it had always been Ben who got into trouble. It had always been Ben who got him into trouble. But you can't argue with a woman who has taken a dislike to you. And you certainly can't argue with a woman who has taken a dislike to you and is your brother's wife. It was a long time since he'd felt so confused about everything. The last time was back in that bar in Australia, after she'd left. And then, when the place was sold, he didn't know where to go, and the not knowing turned into weeks and months, so that in the end he was homeless and living on the streets of Melbourne for over two years. He remembered, as if it was yesterday, the sense of abandonment and loneliness after she'd left. He felt the same way now, and it frightened the hell out of him. The thought of ending up back on the streets hit him hard. Having been there once, he knew how easily it could happen. He wasn't sure if he had the strength to stop it happening, and he wasn't sure if he had the strength to survive, if it did. Someone tugged at his sleeve. It was the big old hound from the pub. Emily was twenty feet away, standing in the doorway. Mutt likes you, she said. Who would have thought? I've just been on the phone to Dad. My uncle is going to be okay. He's out of intensive care. That's good. I just thought you'd like to know. They stood looking at each other. He realised how old and grubby he must seem to her. 
Oh, and I asked Dad if there were any jobs going. I told him someone was in inquiring. Oh, yeah? He asked me what you were like. What'd you tell him? I said it was hard to tell, but that you seemed nice. The way she looked at him, and the way he felt at that moment, she could have been the one with a lifetime behind her, and he, the callow youth, starting out. Are you nice? she asked. When did you know you wanted to write? Was there any particular time? Did it strike you? You know, when did you know this is what I want to do? Well, I don't know if I ever knew that I wanted to write. And I still would find that quite a difficult question. So I'm not the kind of writer who is writing all of the time and is very unsettled and unhappy if they're not writing, even though they're unhappy when they're writing as well. That, because I've done a lot of other things in my life as well. But what I do know is that I liked writing stories in school. And I do know that when I was working in my first job, which was kind of a dead-end job in the bank in my early 20s, I know I was writing stories. And I actually entered the Listowel Writers Short Writers Competition like a long, long time ago. And I came third, which astonished a lot of people and probably astonished me. And then I just lived my life and I was doing scribbles and stuff and I was writing this and that, but never with any serious intention of publishing anything. And it's only about, I would say, 20, 22 years ago when I moved out of Dublin and went down to where I'm living now in North Roscommon in a cottage in the countryside. And I found myself with time and I started to write some stories and I started to write some poems and I slipped right back into it. And I would say for about a 10 year period, I wrote like a professional writer would write. And I don't write like that any longer. I still am writing, but for about 10 years, I used to go to the Tyrone Guthrie Centre in Anna McCarrick three times a year for one week and write intensively. And over that period, I produced a lot of material. I wrote a lot of stories. I wrote a lot of poems. I had seven books published over that period, uh, three children's books, two poetry books, a short story collection, and then a collection of children's poems that I published myself. So I was very, very, um, I was producing a lot of stuff. But I'm not the kind of writer that can keep that up. And I'm not writing as much as I used to. And you were talking about, you know, moving from Dublin and the cottage in the country. So is it conducive, is the environment conducive to writing where you are now? I found myself down in North Roscommon. And with a lot of time, but not feeling very stressed. And I think it was just the space. It wasn't necessarily the countryside, but definitely it was the quiet. It was definitely the quiet and definitely the darkness. Because I am somebody who, I know it's a bit of a cliche, I love nature, but I am somebody who grew up in nature because my father took us up to the mountains every single weekend. And so I kind of found myself in what I would call almost a bit of paradise. All the stresses of my life in Dublin were gone. And for about three or four months at least, I just found I was enjoying this time. And I was using that time to just explore things. You know, I, I, I had no particular plans to write a collection of anything. 
And in actual fact, I was, for the first few months, I was trying to marry my two interests, which was writing and reading, with my other interest, which is kind of animal rights and veganism. And so I was writing short stories about animals escaping from different places, like pigs escaping from pig farms, etc. And that is really what kicked off my writing career, because one of those stories turned into a story that was published by O'Brien Press. Um, the others they considered far too dark, but they really liked the, the one about the grizzly bear escaping from the zoo and calling on this boy Patrick and ended up living with him and the mum. And that changed everything for me because I was brought up to O'Brien Press and they told me how much they enjoyed it and could I write three of them, not just the one. And I'd already been writing poems at that stage. And so the whole thing kind of took off then. And I wrote, um, I wrote a trilogy of children's novels, which never got published, but that was okay. I enjoyed doing it. So, but definitely the being down on my own in the cottage for that period of time was, um, was hugely helpful. Let's move on to the story, Thirst. You said that some of your poems might have been around for years. So was the idea for this story around for a while? It was around for a while. Uh, the strange thing about it is that I was never in Australia. So I do, I am able to write stories about locations that I've never been in, but provided they don't get into that much detail. I just needed him to have a life a long, long away from where he was. And um, yeah, I tend to write stories about people who are struggling. And in actual fact, a lot of my stories wouldn't end with a hopeful note, to be quite honest with you. Um, and if they do, I often change them. But I kind of liked the idea of this kind of reverse thing happening where she walked out on him all those years ago. Well, not walked out on him, but she didn't, she arrived and she didn't know where she was going. And she decided maybe to go back the way she came. And likewise with him, that he was at this point in his life and this completely unexpected possibility of maybe a relationship comes completely out of the blue. And I like the idea of that because that's the way life is. I've kind of found that out a lot over the last couple of years. That I'm not exactly sure if things happen for a reason. I'm beginning to think they do. Um, but the way unexpected encounters can change a person's life just like that. I really like that idea. And the fact that there's some that there's hope there at the end, I think that's a really good theme at the moment because we're all entering into this very dark period of consciousness and where the world is going and there's a lot of fear. And the idea that we can still hold on to hope, I think, is really crucial. You said a bit about the main character, so he's a bit of an outcast or a survivor, as he's called in the story. So why were you drawn to investigate a character like him? Well, I wouldn't say that my life reflects his, but I am a bit of an outsider in the sense that I went into a profession when I left school and then left it because I just knew I couldn't. And everyone like was astonished that I left it because it was a job for life. But for me, it was a prison for life. And so I've kind of just made things up as I went along. And things could have gone very badly for me. And I think there's a couple of times during my life 
if things had gone even worse, I could have ended up on the street. And I think we're all aware of how easy that can happen. And so um, it's not autobiographical, but inside my head there's, there's an element of, of the man in the story on how close we can, yeah, well, just the, how close we can kind of flirt with the um, things going bad for us. And it can, it, sometimes it doesn't take much for things to go wrong. Just one thing and kips it over the edge. So, um, And also I think stories are more interesting if you're reading about people who are struggling because life for a lot of people is a struggle. And what about the dialogue? It's very natural, say, between the man and the younger woman. Is it something that you have to work at? Do you uh, eavesdrop on people on the bus or something? Or, you know... Writing dialogue, how does it work for you? No, I don't do a, I don't do a Maeve Binchy on it. She used to talk about sitting in cafes on buses and listening to people. I don't do that at all. Um, I think I'm, I'm not the best at writing dialogue, but I'm definitely not the worst. Like, I always know when I'm reading something and the dialogue is terrible. But then I read Kevin Barry and, like, he just nails it each time. And I, um, I do work on it. So this, that story was written and then there was probably six or seven drafts afterwards. And a lot of the work would have been on the dialogue. And a lot of the work on the dialogue would have been cutting. Cutting. No long speeches or anything. And um, just trying to kind of visualize the conversation and where they were. I've seen Kevin Barry where he's reading and he's almost performing like an actor when he reads live. So when you're writing the story, do you, you know, read out loud and read the different characters to see how they sound? Um, I do, but no, probably not as much as he does because he is—he came from an acting uh, thing as well. And like I've been at his readings, and they're brilliant. I can't do what he does because you know I probably read most of those three characters with a similar type of accent, and he would give them a different accent. But I do read them out loud, yeah, definitely. And um, I always read the story out loud after I've written it first. I think that's crucial. And even reading the story now, a couple of things jumped out at me that I hadn't really noticed before because it really puts a spotlight on the text when you're reading it and there's a microphone in front of you and you can't take any breaks and and then you, of course you realise that other people are going to be listening to this because you write it in a room and nobody's listening to it except your inner voice but you don't write it for yourself you write it to share I'm not sure what that's all about to be honest with you but you do write it to share not to show off but just to just to kind of share the story that you've written because you'd like people to read it and see if it affects them the way it might affect you. Like, I believe it or not, like I'm quite a, I'm quite a softy. Um, the first time I read that story out loud myself after I'd printed it out, um, I got a bit teary near the end. I like people coming together. I like people making that connection. And you talked about some of the poems and some of the stories that you have written so many and also the need to share. So are there still a lot of poems and stories that you have that, that haven't been out there yet? Well, there's some poems I couldn't publish because they were too personal, either about me or about other people. Uh, and then there's some poems which I kind of changed the identity of, like the sex of the person, for instance, so they wouldn't know it was about them because I liked the poem so much. But I also knew I couldn't publish it because the person I'd written it about would obviously know it was about him or her. Um, so I would say in relation to the, the poems, 
I would say this would just be an average, a, a kind of a guess. I would say about maybe 25% of all the poems I've written will ever be published or maybe even less. It takes me a long time to kind of dump a poem, but eventually I do dump them. In relation to stories, that's a problem because if you're working on that percentage rate, that means you have to write an awful lot of stories to end up with, you know, 15 publishable stories. Um, but that's where I'm at at the moment. And I don't like dropping a story unless it clearly can't be fixed. And it's hard to fix it, actually. If you've written a story, it's hard to go back and fix it if there's something fundamental wrong with it. It's not hard to go back and work on the text and increase the tension and work on the dialogue. But if there's something fundamentally missing from the story, it's hard to insert that. It's not impossible. It's definitely not impossible. Uh, but it's much harder, I think. Okay, thanks, Terry. Harness Your Hopes was produced and presented by Alan Meany. Music was by Eamon Bailey. The writer on this episode was Jerry Boland. The programme is supported by a Creative Ireland bursary from Galway County Council. <laughs>